Hello and welcome to Woman Up, the podcast series from Procreate Project. Woman Up speaks to and about artists, academics, writers and activists, midwives, carers and more. All mothers or parents and all women or non-binary people. Those challenging ideas and ideals, questioning assumptions and provoking social change. The platform is dedicated to the people and women that are taking risks, to the ones trying to change current structures founded on biases that have to do with gender, caring responsibilities, race and the integration of the private and the public. We will have conversations about lived experiences, achievements and aspirations. We'll also share campaigns and awareness around crucial intersectional struggles and subjects. Hello and welcome to Woman Up. I'm Susan Merrick. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Frances Hatherley, who is a writer, researcher and curator. Her writing provokes critical engagements with working class women's subjectivities, creativities, artworks and notions of a classed aesthetics. In 2018, she was awarded her PhD from Middlesex University titled Sublime Dissension, a working class anti-Pygmalion aesthetics of the female grotesque. Examining the intersections of class and gender in the formations of grotesque and sublime femininities in art and visual culture. In 2020, she published her first book on Joe Spence with a foreword by Marina Warner, titled Class Slippers, Joe Spence, Fantasy, Photography and Fairy Tales. Frances has been involved in curating several exhibitions in the UK, and she's currently working on her second book, exploring her conception of the anti-Pygmalion in representations of women in art and popular culture, with a focus on the practices of working class cultural workers in Britain. Hello, Fran, how are you? Hello, Susan. I'm really good. Lovely to be talking to you. Lovely to have you on here as well. Um, So in preparation for our chat, as you know, actually, I read your PhD thesis as well as Mm -hmm. your book, Class Slippers. Um, And as a working class woman, growing up working class and trying to figure out how that affects me, even with the privilege I have now, it was a breath of fresh air to read your work, to be able to relate to so much and to find some really good references as well that I could go to. So thank you for that, firstly. My pleasure. Thanks for reading it. Oh no, it's really good. And it's been nice to, um, I shared as well online and quite a few, few people have been interested in reading it. So hopefully they have been too. Oh, that's um, good. Yeah. Um, I'd like to dive right in with the PhD actually, if that's all right. Yeah, so you it. focus on the anti-Pygmalion. Um, can you explain a bit more about what you mean by that concept? Yeah. So the anti-Pygmalion is sort of a phrase borrowed from Ovid's poem and I always before I say it pause because I always I very often say pronounce it wrong which I guess (laughs) is like a typical sort of autodidact um, trait but also I think more famously it's the George Bernard Shaw play that was then films and it is the process of taking a working class woman and kind of um, I was going to say tarting her up but that's the opposite kind of classing her up into a lady and I hate this and I hate the process and I hate that it's meant to be a good thing and it's you know we've got tv shows that have this kind of process where you get someone who looks you know in quotes rough or tarty or they're not dressing with respectability or they're showing too much of their body and then you kind of middle class them up and this kind of going from bad to good, or you have no education, you go through university and now you're good. And I felt very much like 
well, no, I don't want to do that. Um, what if we don't do that? What if we hold on to aspects of our speech accent what if we don't soften up our accents I mean I've got a southern accent so I think everyone sort of north of London assumes that you're (laughs) that you're posh if you're southern and I guess like we've talked about this before that every time I meet a northerner I think they're like a socialist (laughs) terrible kind of assumptions from childhood I guess um but yeah where was I so basically that what if we don't soften ourselves or kind of make ourselves respectable? What if instead um, we kind of hold on to these things that we're meant to kind of lose along our journey to kind of, you know, respectability? And so the idea of, so the the Ovid play is, is Pygmalion and so is the George Bernard Shaw play. And then the film is My Fair Lady. So I was like, no, it's the anti-Pygmalion. So I'm also not saying that all working class women are rowdy, have strong accents or dress in provocative ways or allowed. But the point is, is that femininity is constructed along gendered lines. And so if you are, if you happen to have an accent that isn't kind of southern neutral middle class, or you happen to dress in a way that shows your body or is kind of loud or you're opinionated or you don't present in a kind of discreet European middle class thin white able-bodied way that your kind of your femininity is wrong so I'm not saying that all working class women fit into these tropes but those of us that have done and that do I'm saying no we're fine as we are so it's that's that that's the anti-pygmalion awesome thank you Fran (laughs) that's lovely and clear as well um, so you and I have talked about our own class, both yeah. being working class or at least growing up working class with working class parents. Yeah. Um, for you, how does this shape your focus and what are the benefits and challenges of this to your work and your working life? I think it's really tricky because I think, yeah, as we've talked about, we've both kind of moved through from one class to another and find ourselves not quite comfortable in the position we're at. I think that people very often want to, I mean, one thing my work does is I'm not trying to say what being working class is because it's it's boring and also it shuts it down. It means that people like us, for example, well, you're not really working class anymore, are you? So you don't need to speak on this. And actually that erases, I don't know, 20, 25 years, 30 years of our lives. And so... And also it assumes that you can't be an artist and working class, which is not true. You can't get an education or a higher education and be working class and you can. Um, And so I don't know. I guess that it's always there. And I kind of think about my class identity as working class background because my kind of family income would definitely move me from working class to um to middle class you know I enjoy the benefits of not being poor I enjoy childcare and you know being able to afford to take my child to nursery which means I get to write and all of these things which are benefits and privileges and I mean they should be for everybody firstly um of not being poor of not being and then I know that not everyone from working class backgrounds is poor but we were poor growing up um, And so it's kind of there all the time. And it's what shapes my 
reception of discussions about education, discussions about childcare, discussions about art, discussions about access, but in a way that's kind of, I'm sort of fighting for my younger self or fighting for girls like me in my writing that, well, just because I'm currently not struggling in those ways, I'm still shaped by those experiences. And I also think that it's very, very obvious when you're in the arts or you're a writer that many of the people around you haven't had those experiences. So they look at work made by working class people and they miss so much. There's so much they just can't see. And that's not because they're bad or, you know, they're Tories or their politics is dodgy. It's because they just haven't had those experiences so that they can't they can't see those things. They can't see what's being shown to them. And often, you know, these works are received like with, you know, just stereotypical responses. So I think my work is a lot of like, hang on a minute, let's look at that again. Let's <laughs> let's think about how we feel when we look at that. Is it horrible what we're looking at? Or, or have you just been taught to think that working class lives must be horrible so I think it's a sort of corrective and providing a sort of alternative way of looking and thinking about works made by working class people because they have been made invisible there's huge hurdles to access but also representations of working class people in art and tv are often again treated with stereotypes so yeah I'm sort of trying to offer alternatives and a corrective to, you know, better ways we might think about people that aren't posh on telly mm. and in books and in art. That's um, that's really interesting. I've got so I've got a load of post-it notes behind the computer that I'm going to look at for my questions. Um, and I had one that specifically talked about the term you used, um, working class tourists, or just tourists in general. I think when looking at working class lives, yeah, and then um. And in your PhD, you talk about this and how it's it's so interesting that when we see art or something on the TV, TV programmes or anything, where the focus is on working class lives, it's called tourism mm. by people who are critiquing it because they assume that everybody watching it is a tourist to that life, is yeah. just has not grown up with that life so that's making massive assumptions on mm -hmm. the artist or you know tv viewers and audiences as middle class rather than working class themselves yeah um yeah so can you talk a little bit more about that about this these assumptions of middle class audiences and how that affects yeah I mean I think it's something that's frustrated me for my whole adult life probably before that is this use of like we and us when you're talking about literature or books or uh, art there's always this like us and them and it's frustrating reading these things and I guess it's a gendered thing as well like you can look at it and it, the assumption is that you're male and you kind of go hang on a minute that's not an us that's you and finding yourself being the them all the time so in my in my writing I always like to say us and what I mean is like working class people, because we are reading these books. We are watching the films. We are we are doing these things. Um, I think this idea of class tourism, I mean, yes, it's a thing. But also it's a way of saying over there, that life, that's another world. 
Um, and it means you don't even have to think about what's actually happening that, no, this isn't another world. This is like next door. This is down the road. This is in your city, in your town. It's not another world. It's not another country. Um, and there's this kind of when I was writing about Richard Billingham's work, which he's the one that's kind of a lot of you know, class tourism, he's taking pictures of his family. They're intimate pictures and they're hard to look at, but they're also warm and affectionate and loving and intimate and tender. But when people look at it, they don't see that. They don't want to see that you could look at someone who isn't you know conventionally beautiful or doesn't look like the idealized mother figure who is kind of you know clean and respectable and polished and she might look a bit tired but she's very happy and you know this kind of these images of motherhood instead you see someone smoking a fag having a drink you know whose lipstick is a bit of a mess whose house is maybe a bit of a mess but the house is also decorated beautifully you know with such care there's colored wallpaper there's you know patterned cushions and all of this bric-a-brac that's just written off as like tacky but for her obviously she's taken great joy in creating this space so instead of kind of thinking of it as like a visitor which is so alienating and so dehumanizing instead to kind of look at it and go no these are intimate pictures I've just not experienced that. Like we look at art all the time. People watch foreign films about people that are literally in another country and they're not like, oh, I can't relate. I can't relate because they're like, oh, it's the human experience. It's universal. Like it doesn't matter. I can read the subtitles. But why is it that if you're looking at an image of a working class woman who is fat, who's smoking a fag, you're like, oh, this is like, you know, this must be some sort of tourism because it's completely out of my experience. And I think it's an unwillingness to go there, to let the picture move you, to feel tenderness to this woman that actually we've been taught to despise because she's probably on benefits and she's overweight. How dare she? You know, so it keeps you at a distance terms like this when we're talking about, when we're talking about lives that are near to us probably or lives that we've experienced or that our partners have experienced or our friends have experienced or, you know, our work colleagues. Like, I think it's a really, it's a distancing thing. Like, I'm not going to go there. It's really, um, yeah, it's really emotive as well. And when I, so when I, from your work, seeing the Richard Billingham images again, I kind of looked into his work more and then watched the film yeah. that he made um, about, yeah. about his mum and dad. Um and it's definitely the case that because our education and the way that we're brought up, regardless of class, whatever school we're in, we're kind of brought up to be feel shameful yeah. about working about those kinds of images and those lives. Yes. So I found I found it really emotive watching this film, and it and I've and I've had that experience before, and I think I messaged you afterwards because it's the first time I've yeah. really realised why I feel that way, and a lot mm -hmm. of the feeling is, um, which I'm sure a lot of people share. There's like recognition, and well, there's kind of there's kind of like the the initial oh shame. I'm embarrassed to watch this because I'm embarrassed for those people, yeah, which comes from being taught that you should be embarrassed. Then there's then there's the recognition 
of oh my god they've got the same plates we had growing up that's the same carpet that yeah. is you know that's the same wallpaper that that was my auntie my auntie's you know ashtray was always spilling over and <laughs> and I loved and I felt so comfortable in her living room yeah and and then yeah elements so elements of it that I'm totally recognizing and then feeling double shame for recognizing yes. it and thinking oh well I'm supposed to feel shame about that and now I recognize it as part of my life or my family's life so then I feel extra yeah. shame and it's it's really messy well, isn't it yeah it's really messy because it's exposure it's like showing what you're not meant to show to those people or like you know teachers or social workers or any authority figures that that are going to judge you like you're not don't show them that shit and so I get it when people are cross with Richard Billingham I mean you know this is like 20 years it's more than 20 years ago because it's like the mid 90s um people were cross with him like you know you shouldn't have done that to your family and actually I'm really glad that he did because I mean the way that, that I think also it's worth saying that the way that his photos were used when they were shown was about sensation. I mean, um, Saatchi used them. They were meant to be kind of shown very small, very intimately, and they were fucking blown up huge. So every bit of cat piss on the floor or fag butt could be seen. It was meant to provoke a sort of spectacle and sensation, but they were meant to be intimate, small pictures. Um, And if you think about that, when you look at the images, I think it changes the way you think about them. But yeah, there is an element of like, you've let us down, you're, sh- you're airing the dirty laundry in public. But I'm always a fan of airing dirty laundry in public. I think that silence and secrecy and shame has no use for anyone ever. And so showing these, and also I think there is an element of like, well, why should I be ashamed? I think that, you know, in interviews with Richard Billingham, there's a lot of well, why, sh- why shouldn't I show my family? Why shouldn't I show my life? And it's like, no, because you're meant to be ashamed. You're meant to change your accent, go to university, pretend like it never happened. And so I agree. Like when I first looked at the pictures, you know, my ch- face went red. You know, my cheeks were flushed. I was like, shit, is anyone, you know, I was looking at the book in my college library, like, oh, you know, looking, checking, ar- looking around, seeing if anyone had sort of seen what I was looking at. But I also felt, so excited that these were contemporary pictures of working class people like not that long ago so I was at college in like the early 2000s and the I think the book was printed in like 98 so it was like this is happening right now and this kid's like published a book about photography and that was really exciting so I think it's like well if you don't like the pictures because they show poverty fucking get rid of poverty then Poverty shameful. It's shameful to be abandoned by the social. It's shameful that, you know, like Richard Billingham's dad, I think, was a miner. Or he worked in a factory and was kind of made redundant. Like, look at that stuff. Look at Thatcher. That's shameful. Don't look at people who are trying to make the best of things, who are trying to find pleasures where they can and think, oh, that's shameful. Don't show it. Like, that's that's the wrong way around. So, yeah, the, but the pictures do contain that element of like, oh, this is a lot. And that's that's kind of why I also talk about the sublime, because it's not just like, oh, they're just beautiful pictures. They also provoke a deeper feeling of kind of like, oh, shit, this is really stirring something up. And it's very powerful. 
so yeah yeah it is it is very powerful and the way that you talk about it is really powerful as well um so I if you don't mind I'd quite like to talk about how you see motherhood and class yeah um because I hope you don't mind me saying but you're expecting your second uh on I am, the way. Yeah. Yeah, so very, full very in the throes of, right uh, of motherhood <laughs> um so I don't know which angle I want to come at but I I'm staring at a post-it here which says um my kids are middle class and it's a yeah. struggle it's a struggle as well as the working class kid in me being yeah. so happy that they've got all this privilege but also being like ah they're gonna be such spoilt little shit (laughs) um (laughs) I know what you mean I've got two two stepkids and I had to stop myself saying to them things like that's not being poor or I never had this because you know my you know the the babies that I have had well one and soon to have another they they're going to grow up middle class um because they won't have known anything else and I don't know it doesn't it's weird it does weird me out it does weird me out because then I'm fully established within (laughs) middle classes um so but yeah I mean I think that the experience of motherhood is massively shaped by class position and access to money like even before you have the baby options to do kind of NHS run prenatal care versus private stuff like NCT which is really expensive I think it's like nearly 100 quid the classes are much smaller so of course you get like more one-on-one experience you can talk to the midwives that are explaining to you like the three stages of labor or uh, the different colors of baby's poo and what this might mean and all of these sort of support systems are now private or you have to pay for And so even before you've had the baby, your class position, how much money you've got determines your level of knowledge about birth, your your confidence. And I think your confidence and your knowledge massively shape how you go into having a baby. Like if you feel like, I don't know, what what am I doing? What am I doing? I don't know what this means. Um, And also you're in a position that your encounters with social workers, healthcare providers has not been positive in the past or you felt judged or or yeah on the back foot then you're less likely to ask for help so things like postnatal depression and postnatal anxiety are going to be like not diagnosed as much so I think it affects every bloody aspect of being a mother and being able to take my daughter to nursery for it's like she goes four days a week now she's nearly three that means that I have time to write. I have time to think. I have time to work. And I mean, nurseries are so expensive that it's like, you know, you're kind of working for free. Um, but if you have a job and you don't see it as kind of like, oh, this is my career that I need to keep peddling away on, what's the fucking point in doing it? Why not stay home with your kids and go on benefits? Because then you don't get to you're not seeing them during the day you're working for nothing and you know with the price of nurseries you're often working with a deficit in order to have them there in order to work so yeah I think that um 
it's not easy. And if we had, you know, state run free for all nurseries, it would massively equalize the experience of motherhood for women. Um, you know, I was watching that, the Alina Ferrante adaptation with Olivia Cole. Have you seen it? The Lost Daughter? No. Well, it's basically like the older character is like in an Italian uh, beach resort and we see flashes of her younger self. And we know that she's had a large period where she didn't have a relationship with her daughters, that she'd just sort of done a runner. And her sort of regret around this. But we also see her in absolute rage because she's trying to write. She's a young academic and there is no space and no time. And I think it's like it's been talked a lot about. It's like sort of the ambivalence of motherhood or motherhood rage. And I think that she loves her kids. She wants to be with them, but she actually also wants something else. Mm-hmm. And that something else is to write, to publish, to go to academic conferences. But there's, there's not the space. And I think that motherhood is so much harder when you're doing so many things at once. If you're just there, like I have Thursdays with my daughter and I try not to do any any other work. Sometimes I will have to, but that's, such a luxury sad to say it's a luxury it should be like normal that you have to do multiple things all the time when you're child rearing because chasing around a toddler is so distracting you can't be also you know replying to emails and all of this stuff and that causes the rage that causes the tension that causes the stress where you feel like you're failing at both jobs and actually having the space to go no we're on your time I'm just going to be with you that is not that isn't a standard thing that you get as a mother and so this sort of rage I think is to do with having to be productive on all bloody fronts and I think well it's totally down to um so I've been talking to um a friend of mine quite a lot about um different family structures um you know for those who maybe don't or can't have kids but want to be involved in parenting in some way um but also for parents who find it really fucking hard within yeah. this um within the what's considered nuclear family or mm. or finding it hard because life is just hard if you are in poverty or if you are on your own and actually if you consider different family structures where there are more adults around yeah you know immediately burdens are eased and yes, responsibilities are shared and yeah i think i think that there's there's probably a lot to think about in terms of class and that in in those circumstances as well. Yeah, like we need a village. Yeah. We need a village. And I think kind but of that's not considered respectable. What's considered respectable yeah. in middle class is that nuclear family. Oh yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. And I think that although, you know, I think kids do need you, you know, you have your kind of primary people that you have your very close bond with. It's also so important and good for kids to have lots of trusted, respected adults in their lives that care about them. And, you know, I was reading something the other day and it was like, it's not that you want to opt out of pre- of kind of parenting and going, oh, you know, I need time. It's that you want people to opt in. You know, you want help, you want support, you want to do it with other people. Um, This just kind of like isolated one person and a child thing is 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 really hard. And it's 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 unnatural. Like just I mean, not to say that 
single I'm not saying single mothers are unnatural I'm saying doing it alone is unhelpful to you um it's really really hard and yeah like that you need the support you need people around you and I think as we kind of move around cities probably away from where we grew up we lose that um connection to family that can help um and it's it's a real bummer but yeah I agree I think that you know communal parenting styles um and that's not it's not necessarily that you spread it equally among everybody because I think that especially when they're little they need that kind of one-on-one bond but also that people are helping and people are involved um and I guess also that people fear judgment of family members and but I think you know it's it's better to have it than not to have it 100 percent um and like there's down my road there's this um it's I don't know I think it's like a community run thing and it's like midwives and uh breastfeeding specialists and postnatal physio people and it's called the village and at first I was like oh what's this like you know we are in a city what's this about it's called the village and then it kind of clicked like it's called the village because it's like for women that don't have a village like that's where you go and they do like choir and they do they organize all sorts of different things so that women have that community that they are with other women talking to other women and I think once you are with each other talking and sharing the burden of like what you're going through is lessened dramatically but unfortunately a lot of these things are that you have to pay for I think they run a lot of things for free but other things that are a bit more specialist you are paying for yeah, we had loads um, in Aldershot via the Shore Start centres when yeah. I was having the kids. And it was totally about, you know, building a tribe, having that. Because like you say, yeah. I'd, I'd moved away from home, so I didn't have my family around. I had um, mm. a little bit of my partner's family locally. Um, but it's in, you know, in our Western European culture, we are kind of taught you're supposed to just get on with it and cope yeah. and manage whatever your circumstances get Don't on with complain. it yeah yeah and um it's been really wonderful I've, I've I've made quite a few um Muslim friends recently who uh live in more extended families or have done and yeah. um talking to them about um you know having other family members living with them and how that was has been so essential when they've been having kids oh my god like, yeah god yeah yeah, I mean, I'm nice. trying to get my mum to like move in for a bit after this baby yeah. is born. Um, but she's she's a radiographer, and I think her hospital do need her. Um, but yeah, it's like, can you just stay for like the first six weeks? <laughs> you know, like, and I think that you know, in different times, like I think that's what her mum did. I think her mum kind of moved in with them for a bit. But yeah, like just you do need these structures of support. Um, and I think what I what I saw a lot of with my first baby was all of these classes kind of filling a gap in where you would have like support from say family members or neighbors that instead you just like fill your days with classes of like, you know, you've got a really tiny baby, but you're going to like something that baby has no clue what's going on. But I think it's also this pressure of like mums having to be productive, like go to all of these classes, be productive. Don't just sit at home. And it's like, you're probably, your body's probably still healing. You know, it takes months and months and months for your body to like feel remotely like it did before. Um, You're figuring out like how to feed your baby, whether that's like breast or bottle, like it's complicated and you're figuring it out. And then you've got to like 
look, everybody, I'm healthy and I've bounced back and I'm going to all these classes. And I think it's such a kind of capital, capitalistic infiltration of motherhood that you have to look productive when you are raising a huge, small human. Like, that's enough. That's enough. Feed them, clothe them, make sure they're happy and warm and fed. That's the job. But no, you have to also be going, I'm taking my child to this class and this class. And look, I'm being so productive, productive, productive. And this kind of fear that people will see you as kind of lazy or that you've not done enough or maybe your house is a mess. And I think that is this feeling that we have to be working at all times. We have to be working and earning our keep. Um, and I think that, yeah, that's that's capitalism. That's saying that, like, you you have to it's almost like you have to earn your maternity pay you know like by yeah. finding other sources of work and constantly prove and, your value yeah and also like giving your babies cultural capital like oh well my baby's learned this <laughs> she'll do okay at preschool and all of that shit it's really <laughs> like I mean classes are good in the sense that they get you out of the house but this kind of push that you should be busy 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 it's like no no too much yeah Sounds very sensible. Right, what else have I got on my uh, post-its? <laughs> so I have one here which says, 30 years after Spence's class shame work and phototherapy, oh, yeah. are we in a different position with regard to class and art representation? Um, no. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so. So I know that there's been sort of new studies um, and I'm going to blame it on being like nearly nine months pregnant, but I can't remember the name of the person that did this study, an academic, at maybe UCL, um, about like, oh, now there are now like six classes, precariat, eminent service worker, all of these things. And if you're thinking about class as like an economic or social economic category and you're looking at the way that we all experience culture how do we experience culture you can have like no money and a zero hour contract job and if you like if you live in a city and you can still go to like the theater you know there's like five quid tickets and especially like my stepdaughter when she went to when she was at secondary school um in southeast london they used to take the kids on so many trips to like, you know, cultural institutions. It was like, don't be intimidated by this stuff. This stuff is for everybody and it's for you. And I think that that was so good because it was like, yeah, this is on your doorstep and it belongs to you. Culture, this culture belongs to you. It's not separate. Um, and so, yeah, like it's not this. And also we have the Internet. It's not the same where you just didn't ha like the gatekeeping was more rigid. So, yes, like our access to culture has broadened. So it may feel like, oh, well, I enjoy this and this and this, so that must make me a bit posh or like I eat avocados. So, oh, look at me, I must be middle-class. Um, so those sorts of things, which are really just superficial, um, they don't really affect our ability to like earn money and be able to go on holiday and to have security in where we live or where we you know housing security and all sorts of things like those things are still really wobbly you know like renting is still you're still getting screwed over um education system is still racist and classist 
those things are still there. So the things that like Joe Spence and Rosie Martin are talking about, I think are still in evidence. So in some ways, like maybe we should be like, woohoo, we have, we can now enjoy avocados while we're spending 90% of our wages on rent. But that doesn't, that doesn't really change the fundamentals of class inequalities. Um, so I don't know, I think that the shame element, I think, is still there. When I watched the Sally Rooney adaptation of, is it Normal People? Yeah, Normal People. And you see the boy in it feeling absolute shame at moving from his town uh, into, um, what's the name? Oh, what's it called? The university in that they go to. It's like a quite a swish one. I don't know, right? It's gone from my mind. But anyway, they go to like, you know, the Oxford Cambridge style, but Irish equivalent. Trinity. They go to Trinity. And his, the, you know, his love interest, who's from a very big house and, you know, is quite well off. She is like a duck to water. She knows the language. She knows how to do it. And he doesn't. But he also, because he loves, he's very bright and he loves books and language and literature, he isn't quite at home in this town. And so he goes to university really hoping that, right, this will be my moment. This is when I get to be myself. And actually, he's surrounded by people that don't understand where he's coming from. They don't understand him. They see him as you know, somebody who's done sports, so like he's a jock, how can you be intellectual and someone who's done, you know, Irish football and be intellectual? Like it doesn't compute, the things don't work together. So he's kind of treated as a bit of an oddball. But his experience of that is about class. It's about, and it's class shame. And so those experiences, I mean, you know, like I went to school quite a long time ago, but I was at university not that long ago and I felt it. And it's in this book. It's very clear that Connell, the, the male character, feels it. And Lindsay Hanley, who's like writing in the 2000s about her experience, feels it. And then you've got Joe Spence and Rosie Martin talking about their experience of, in the 1950s. They feel it. So there is. And then Richard Hogarth, you know, talking about the scholarship boy and the absolute fear of being found out or pronouncing something wrong or letting your class background kind of seep through there's that thread of continuity running all the way through. So I think as long as we have, you know, a massively unequal society that says, you know, these are the things you need to do in, in order to get ahead, th this way of being is wrong, this way of talking is wrong, this way of expressing yourself is wrong, then of course we're going to feel that shame. Like being, being taught, you know, having teachers talking to you about success at school like if you don't do these things your life is shit that is going to instill shame because you'll go oh what like my parents are you saying mm -hmm. their life's worthless so those sorts of narratives around success and failure and good and bad life choices and what happens if you don't make those choices or what happens if you don't get into you know in quotes good university they set up these you know good and bad positions of like how you you want your life to be and they end up telling you that if you remain working class you failed so I think it's kind of there are things that have changed during you know it's like 40 years I guess 
since Joe Spence was kind of having those, you know, writing those things, having those conversations, doing that work. But yeah, I think there are there are some core things that haven't really changed. And we might have some 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 sort of superficial gains, but the deep structures that instill things like class shame remain. That's really powerful, Fran. <laughs> it's bloody depressing. Yeah, I know. But it is the way you talk about it is really powerful. Oh, thanks. Makes you listen. I don't think I'm going to ask anything else after that. Okay. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or talk about? I don't know. Um, I think I've kind of said it all already, I guess. But yeah, I mean, I kind of like to end with some hopeful, uh, some sort of good things that are happening. And I do think the fact that people are, especially young people, are making zines and organising things themselves is really good. Like it's kind of going, well, we could apply to that council, but we, we might not get funding or we're not in institutions that will support us for this. So we're just going to do it ourselves. And that stuff's really good because there's no gatekeepers. There's no we have to say this to satisfy this audience. It's just and I love that. I love all these new zines that are kind of popping up with like young people, you know, having their own magazines and doing their own distribution. I think that's really positive. And it means that cultural output from you know, young marginalised kids is like going off into the world and it's seen as quite cool. So I really like that. So it's not just like only the posh kids that get to do the talking. So that's that's really good that that's happening now. Excellent. More. We want more voices. From, yes, more voices. We just want more voices, don't we? Well, more voices, different voice, representations. The voices exist. It's just they need to be heard. That's what I mean. Yeah, we want to hear yeah. from more voices. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Fran. My pleasure. Thank you. For Fantastic. No worries. You're absolutely welcome. Um, thank you very much. This was a Woman Up podcast series from Procreate Project. Thank you for listening to Woman Up, the podcast series by Procreate Project. Woman Up is the creation of Amy Dignam and Susan Merrick and produced by Procreate Project. To find more episodes, please visit procreateproject.com or find us on all your usual podcast platforms.